0: This is Anya from New York City, and you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple, it's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content, the most accurate download stats, so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to. And a webpage that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting gets started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. So let's get started. Before we delve into today's show, I would like to thank everyone who has continued to support California Dreaming on Patreon. For a pledge as little as $1, you can gain access to much of the bonus content available exclusive for patrons, as well as receive a few perks from the show. Your generous contributions help with the cost of the production of the show, as well as all of the nice little extras that go along with being a patron at the various levels. And if you would like to support California Dreaming but wish to do so without having to subscribe to Patreon, you can also make a one-off donation through PayPal. So if you've got a dollar or two to spare, you can use our email at CaliforniaPod at Yahoo.com to do so. Again, thank you to everyone who continues to support the show. It is greatly appreciated. This episode is a third part of a series. If you have not yet listened to episodes 66 and 67, you may want to pause this here, go back and listen to those first, and then come back to this episode so you can be caught up with today's story. Also, I must provide you with a warning. This episode contains graphic details involving the brutal death of a very young child. Some of the details you may find disturbing. This episode is not suited for children or anyone who may have difficulty discussing violence against children. Listener discretion is strongly advised. In the last episode, we went through the entire murder case against John Venables and Robert Thompson for their brutal killing of two-year-old James Bulger, from the arrest, interrogation, trial, conviction, time in custody, and eventual release. Today, we are going to go over some opinions that we shared on the Facebook page as well as on Instagram when it comes to the controversy surrounding maintaining the anonymity of these two convicted murderers. We've got several comments and we're going to share those here today. We are also going to get into whether or not justice for James Bolger was achieved and where Thompson and Venables are today and what it is that they have been up to in the years following their release. And hopefully, if we have time, I'm going to talk a little bit about the lives of two of the boys who found James's battered and mutilated body on that Valentine's Day of 1993 and what they went through after having made such a horrific discovery. And one last thing before we move on to the rest of this story. I need to say a few thank yous to a couple of people who helped answer some questions about this case, who helped me gain a little insight from the perspective of those who live in England. You were able to fill in some of the gaps in the story, to make some sense of some of the language and terminology, as well as the climate of the country when it comes to James's story as well as help with some things that I just could not find online. Kim Holt, one of our administrators of the group, Rebecca Jane, and Darren James, all of whom live in England and were able to give me first-hand perspectives on many aspects of the story that I would not have otherwise been able to access. Thank you for all of your help and guidance in getting the story out there. I very much enjoyed studying and learning a bit about the British justice system. I also want to take the time to thank the other administrators of the group, who will also all be getting their very own vacation series stories from their home states in the near future. Valerie, Crystal, Lisa, Randy, and Emily. Except, Emily, you can't get a vacation series because you're here in California with me, but maybe we could talk about a case that you'd love to hear discussed in the show, just to be fair. I also want to quickly take the time to acknowledge the top 50 contributors on the Facebook discussion page. From the top, Jen Moxley, Mar Woods, Rebecca Jane, Sunshine King, Kim Cleveland, Vicki Gervais, Cooper Porter, Jerry Salisbury, L Smith, Karen Rodrigue, Melissa Cox, Dave Weir, Katina Mamagonian, Andrea Will, Lindy Beaumont, Belki Garrido, Katherine Cook, Justin Rimmel, Jen Tysick, Carol Laverty, Elizabeth Couts, Deborah Taylor, Tracy Davis, Franchon Marie, Vicki Sanders, Terry Stafford, Nikki Hames, Bonnie Lee, Jennifer Switzer, Zach Veets, Amanda Manda, Samantha Danielle, Carol Irish, Brad Dunchy, Nikki Thatcher, Aaron Small, Rebecca Scantlin, Amy Davidson, Stephanie Moore, Chris Tyndall, Virginia Morrell, Kate Wallinga, Cynthia Drager, Stephanie Lowe, Amber Anderson, Tanya Todd, Marjorie Skane Jen Hicks. Carolyn Cartier and Kelly Gallagher. You are the top 50 contributors on the Facebook discussion page. Thank you so much for all of your participation and contributions. And if you had two last names, I probably picked the one I thought that I could pronounce easier. And if I failed, feel free to call me out in the group. And if you do not yet belong to the Facebook group, search for The California Dreaming Official Discussion Group. Request, answer one simple question, and you'll be approved to join. Thank you all again for everything. So despite public protest, John Venables and Robert Thompson were freed on parole in June of 2001 after serving their eight-year sentence for murdering baby James Bolger. According to Lord Chief Justice Wolfe, if the men had been transferred from the secure units where they were housed for young offenders into the adult jail system all the quote-unquote good work that the government put into them would be undone stating quote they are unlikely to be able to cope at least at first with the corrosive atmosphere there is also the danger of their being exposed to drugs of which they are present free. Venables and Thompson were granted lifelong anonymity, which we will discuss how we felt about this a little bit later on in this episode when we go over some of the opinions expressed in the discussion group over this. And there is also a worldwide injunction forbidding the revealing of their identities publicly. But there is always the possibility of either Venables or Thompson Revealing their identities on their own, which is said to have happened on at least one occasion that I've read for both men. But Venables' situation is currently more complicated than Thompson's, which has to do with issues of reoffending. Venables hasn't killed again, thankfully, but he has become caught up in some very serious offenses, and we will get into his case in just a little bit also. Whether a youthful offender reoffends whether it's by circumstance accident or deliberate there are statistics out there in regards to the type of young offender units that Thompson and Venables were held in for those eight years that more than 80% who are released from similar units commit crimes again now that statistic was an article I read on CNN.com if this seems inaccurate please post about it on the discussion page with any other articles you may find. It stated, quote, As abnormal young people suddenly turn to lead normal lives, it may only take a scorned girlfriend or a few angry words or a scuffle in a bar, and their carefully crafted and expensive anonymity could come to an end. But one thing is certain. They, meaning Venables and Thompson, will not be doing things together. It will be a condition of their release that they do not associate with one another ever again or return to Liverpool. Let's talk about anonymity. It is not uncommon for suspects that are minors to be given anonymity in the youth courts, and they are usually granted the same if they appear at Crown Court aside from exceptional circumstances. But once the defendant turns 18, all bets are off and their names can be reported. Even when Venables and Thompson were tried and convicted of James's murder, their identities were made public by the judge, which is not usually the way things go. But it's my understanding that it was due to a loophole in the fact that the boys were tried in adult court, which leaves the decision in the hands of the judge presiding over the case. Lifelong anonymity given by the courts is very rare and is usually considered an option in the most horrific and infamous criminal cases. And it is done so to protect the defendants from being attacked or harmed by vigilante types, of which there was plenty of concern for both Venables and Thompson once it was time for them to be granted parole. Many people wish to see these men dead for what they did to James so it was essential to provide them with new identities for their own safety so according to the 1998 human rights act killers can successfully argue that threats against their lives from vigil anti-violence are so abundant that they ought to be entitled to around-the-clock police protection as well as a new identity and life upon release from prison those who want to apply to the high court for new identities as their release becomes imminent must be able to prove that their lives are at risk without anonymity. So in England, these killers new lives are paid for out of the taxpayers pockets and it is not cheap. For Venables and Thompson, the cost was at least a couple of million pounds for each of them to receive a new identity, new life stories, new backgrounds, new credentials, a new national insurance number, new medical records, and a new passport. And the only people who know the original identity of the criminal are very few and include a senior official in the public protection unit at the Ministry of Justice, up to two probation officers, and a designated police officer at the commander level who works in the area where the criminal is residing. And as far as anyone knows, There have not been any known attempts of violence against venables or thompson though denise bulger has admitted that she did locate thompson's father sometime in 2004 through a tip from an anonymous source but became paralyzed with hatred and could not bring herself to confront him or speak to him i want to talk about a few aftermath events related to the case before we move on to what has become of Venables and Thompson since their release. After the trial and conviction, Denise Boulder did give birth to her second son with James's father, but by 1995, their marriage had fallen apart and the couple divorced. Denise went on to marry Stuart Fergus, and they have two boys together, and she is now known as Denise Fergus. James's dad, Ralph, also remarried and he and his second wife now have three girls. The publication The Observer reported that the Bolger family had sought consultation from expert psychiatrists in order to prepare a report for the parole board, which put forth the idea that it was likely Thompson was an undiagnosed psychopath, pointing to the fact that he lacked any remorse from arrest to conviction. But this report was dismissed, but his lack of remorse was heavily scrutinized by the parole board, and as I have stated, it was markedly different from Venables' outwardly emotional outbursts and hysterics throughout the duration of his dealings with police through the court system and beyond. It is also interesting to note that by the time Venables and Thompson were released, they had lost all traces of their Liverpool accents. In 2001, the Manchester Evening News reported some detailed information that pretty much named the secure institutions where Venables and Thompson lived, and this went against the injunction against reporting any information about the case or the identity of the boys. The paper was fined £30,000 for contempt of court and also ordered to pay £120,000 in compensation. On the 14th of March, 2008, James's mom launched a campaign to set up a Red Balloon Learning Center in Merseyside in honor of her son. A Red Balloon Learning Center are United Kingdom specialist learning centers that provide a safe, full time learning environment for children ages 11 to 16 who have dropped out of mainstream schools because of reasons such as bullying, having been assaulted, or other types of trauma. The first one was set up in Cambridge in 1996. And today there are now five Cambridge, Norwich, Northwest London at Harrow, Reading, and the one in James's memory in Merseyside. Also, a memorial garden in Boulder's memory was created at the Sacred Heart Primary School in Kirkby, his hometown, which is a school that he would have attended if he had lived long enough to make it to primary school. In March of 2010, there was a proposal to have the age of criminal responsibility raised from 10 to 12 in England. Maggie Atkinson, the Children's Commissioner, stated that in the case of Venables and Thompson, they should have been placed in programs to help rehabilitate their lives as opposed to having been prosecuted. However, the Ministry of Justice rejected this proposal, noting that children over the age of 10 know the difference between behaving badly and serious wrongdoing a month later in april of 2010 a 19-year-old man from the isle of man was handed a three-month suspended prison sentence for falsely claiming on facebook that a former colleague of his was robert thompson when the sentence was handed down deputy high bailiff alistair montgomery said that in making this false claim he had put the person that he was referring to at significant risk of serious harm and in a perilous position by making the allegations. On the 25th of February, the Attorney General's office reported that they were charging several individuals with contempt of court charges for supposedly publishing pictures online of either Thompson, Venables, or both, as they were currently as adults. A spokesperson for the Attorney General stated, quote, There are many different images circulating online claiming to be of Venables or Thompson. Potentially innocent individuals may be wrongly identified as being one of the two men and placed in danger. The order and its enforcement is therefore intended to protect not only Venables and Thompson, but also those members of the public who have been incorrectly identified as being one of these two men. On the 26th of April 2013 two men were sentenced to nine months suspended jail sentences on contempt of court charges after they admitted to publishing photos that they claimed to be Venables and Thompson on Twitter and Facebook which were allegedly seen by at least 24,000 people before they were taken down the prosecution was meant to set a precedent in this new age of social media that had come about since the time of the original crime and the injunction was imposed intended to send the message that anyone who thought otherwise, that the injunction does include those on the internet who attempt to circumvent the order through their personal social media accounts, as internet users are also subject to prosecution for contempt of court. The same year, on the 27th of November, a man residing in Liverpool also received a 14-month suspended jail sentence for posting pictures on Twitter he claimed were of John Venables. And lastly, on the 14th of July of 2016, a woman in Margate in Kent was sentenced to three years in jail for posing as one of James Bolger's killers on Twitter and sending messages to his mom, Denise. So, let's talk about where Thompson and Venables are today, starting with Thompson. When he was being housed for those eight years for killing James, his mother, Anne, had also been forced into hiding due to threats of violence against her by those angered by the actions of her son having taken part in the murder. But she stayed close to where he was being housed. And since Thompson's release in 2001, he has not re-offended. And from what I can find, he has maintained his anonymity. He's been able to assimilate back into society and he enjoys a private, quiet life. In 2006, there were some reports that he had become involved in a long-term relationship. There was also some speculation that Thompson is gay, but I really could not find anything to substantiate that other than a couple of articles in some British tabloids and those same articles reporting that Thompson's partner in said relationship is aware of who Thompson is and his connection to the murder of James. But like I said... These claims can't really be verified, but honestly, it's not that important. The important thing is that Thompson is maintaining his anonymity, and I could not find any confirmed reports that he may have bragged about his involvement in James's murder at any point, and he is staying out of legal trouble, and, most importantly, he has not reoffended since his release. Venables has not fared as well, however. In 2010, he was sent to prison for crimes related to downloading images depicting child sexual abuse, the subject of the pictures being toddler-aged males. How this all came about was in February of 2010, he called his probation officer, panicking that he thought someone had uncovered his true identity, and he demanded that he start packing and leave his home immediately. 30 minutes later, his probation officer showed up at his home finding Venables seated at his desk, frantically attempting to destroy his computer's hard drive with a knife and a can opener. He tried to tell his probation officer that he was reformatting his hard drive because he wanted to delete his personal data. His computer was seized and sent to a computer forensic analyst, and that's when it was discovered the massive amounts of images of sexual child abuse that he had collected on his personal computer. In 2013, Venables came up for parole, and James's father, Ralph, appeared before the parole board to speak on behalf of his child. He spoke to the board, telling them that he could not forgive Venables and Thompson for what they did to James, and it was his strong feeling that Venables should not be released, stating, quote, Sometimes you feel like you're having a heart attack. It's just a big knot in your chest, and it's been there since day one. But the parole board was unmoved by Mr. Bulger's pleas to keep Venables locked up for his offenses. He was paroled. And it would only be another four years later in 2017 that Venables found himself back in prison again when he was found to not only be in possession of more images of child sexual abuse, but also a so-called pedophile manual that outlined instructions on how to have sex with children. All of this material found to be on his computer. This time he was sentenced to four years and four months in prison. But to the surprise of many after he was jailed for downloading and distributing these images of child sexual abuse. It came out that Venables had been arrested twice prior to these two incidents dating back to 2008 about two years prior to the first time that he was jailed for the child sex abuse images. The Ministry of Justice confirmed that the Justice Secretary, Jack Straw, was aware that Venables had been arrested on both of those occasions, one of which was cocaine possession and the other was getting into a bar fight. But Straw, along with Venables's probation officers and the law enforcement involved in each case, were all in agreement at the time that Venables should not be placed back into custody for violating the terms of his release. In doing so, would have likely thrust Venables back into the news, and they were trying to avoid that. James's mom didn't even find out about these two previous arrests until Venables' two-year sentence for his 2010 imprisonment for possession of those images of child sexual abuse. She said that the news of this she found surprising and concerning that he would not be sent back to prison based on the conditions of his release for killing her son. She was present when Venables pleaded guilty to the three charges of downloading and distributing indecent images of young children, as well as videos depicting children as young as two being sexually assaulted by adults. There were 99 separate items of images and our videos of child sexual abuse discovered on his computer. However, Through forensic analysis, it was found that he had deleted at least 1,200 more indecent items. Also, at this same sentencing hearing, Venables was made to admit something even more disturbing, worse than what many people had already thought when they heard about the charges involving images of child sexual abuse that he was collecting. Venables was online having conversations with a known pedophile, Three conversations to be exact, over the internet in February of 2008. During these conversations, which I believe took place in private messages through online chat rooms, Venables was posing as a 35 year old woman named Dawn Donnie Smith. He described himself, or Donnie, as a married woman from Liverpool. And she openly bragged about sexually abusing her eight year old daughter along with her husband while pretending to be Donnie Venables engaged in a conversation with a 52 year old kitchen fitter from Chelmsford, Essex named Leslie Blanchard, a gentleman who had quite a collection of images of child sexual abuse of his own, some including himself in the images. Then. In one specific conversation Venables had with Blanchard on the 27th of February of 2008, posing as Don, Venables made the suggestion that for a cost to be negotiated, Blanchard could be invited to Liverpool to sexually abuse her daughter. Of course, this sounded good to a pervert like Blanchard, so he gave Venables his phone number, but of course it would never happen. Blanchard would go on to be convicted of possession of images of child sexual abuse and an attempt to meet a child with intent to sexually abuse this child. Venables was not present in the courtroom to enter his guilty pleas, but rather he appeared in court by way of video link from the prison. However, the judge further decided that he would be the only one to view it. He did not feel anyone but he could be trusted with knowing and seeing what john venables the then 27 year old man looked like he didn't even allow james's mom to see citing that it could potentially pose a risk to his life so as everyone in the courtroom sat for this hearing all they could hear was john venables voice echo through the room to hear him say four words yes confirm his name was John Venables and guilty 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 to the three charges against him the Ministry of Justice stood by the decision to not have Venables sent to prison for the 2008 arrests but did confirm that there was one condition added to the terms of his license a curfew he also began random drug testing but his tests came up negative there had been some concern about a possible drinking problem, but this too was dealt with through some additional counseling focused on drinking. Of course, advocates for children's rights felt as though the authorities and the government should be partly to blame for Venable's continued troubles with the law, pointing out that the things came out at the sentencing hearing, the crimes with which he's now been associated with and convicted of, shines a bright light of doubt as to the effectiveness of the rehabilitative process Venables went through as a child following the murder of James Bolger. But the ministry would say that the only person responsible for Venables' actions after 2001 was Venables himself. And as many of you may know, Venables is currently in prison for similar charges that he went to jail for in 2010. But this time, it seemed the charges involved the manufacturing of indecent images of child abuse, as well as having that pedophile instruction manual. He pleaded guilty again via video link and was sentenced to serve three years and four months, the judge calling him manipulative and dishonest. And again, James's parents were present in the court to hear the latest guilty pleas and yet another horrendous ordeal for them to have to go through In a decades long string of horrendous ordeals beginning with the day that this man, along with his classmate, took their boy and viciously murdered him. James's dad called this sentence an insult. In his most recent conviction, Venables admitted to possessing 392 Category A images, and this is a level that is deemed the most severe along with 148 Category B images and 630 Category C images. And for those of us outside the United Kingdom, these categories are a rating system used to determine the severity of images of child sexual abuse. It was created in Ireland in 1997 and is known as the Copine Scale, which is short for Combating Pedophile Information Networks in Europe. Category A images are defined as images involving penetrative sexual activity and or images involving sexual activity with an animal or sadism of which Venables possessed 392 items. Category B images are defined as images involving non-penetrative sexual activity of which Venables possessed 148 items. In category C are defined as indecent images not falling within the categories of A or B of which Venables possessed six hundred and thirty items. The images Venables had in his computer were mostly of children between the ages of six and 13, although some were younger and some were babies. He was told in court, quote, given your history, it is significant that a number of the images and films were of serious crimes inflicted on male toddlers. And the so-called pedophile manual was described by the prosecutor as a disgusting and sickening document, which falls far below any recognizable standard of morality. And the idea was put forth that the mere fact that Venables had such a manual suggested that he may just be considering committing a sexual crime against a child. But this time in conjunction with the sentence, Venables was also subjected to an indefinite sexual harm prevention order and his computer was confiscated. So what the sexual harm prevention order is designed to do is to protect the general public against serious sexual harm. And only the court can impose this order. It can be made by the magistrate's court or the crown court at the time a defendant is sentenced for a sexual crime or following a complaint made by a person previously convicted of a sexual offense where their behavior suggests that they may reoffend. The order stays in force for several years, it disqualifies a defendant from working with children, and it makes the defendant subject to the sex offender registry. Reaching the order is considered a separate penalty and carries a sentence of up to five years in prison. So this brings us to the debate whether or not James's killer should continue to be afforded the luxury of lifelong anonymity. I posed the question on Facebook, and it seemed like the general consensus that when it comes to Robert Thompson, seeing as he has seemingly blended seamlessly back into society since his release in 2001— That he has embraced his second chance at freedom and he has not been any more of a burden on taxpayers that his anonymity should remain intact as it is clear that he is still very much despised for his role in james's murder that to expose his identity would put his life in serious danger i understand the ongoing desire for vengeance but the argument could easily be made that Robert Thompson is a textbook example of successful rehabilitation and I tend to agree. Though I do feel a tremendous amount of grief and sadness for Denise Fergus and Ralph Folger, I am relieved that Thompson has managed to lead a quiet life. He was but a child himself when he participated in James's murder. That fact cannot be lost on any of us. But Venables is a different story. He too has been given the luxury of lifelong anonymity, but he's engaged in some very disturbing criminal activity in the ensuing years. So I asked the question on Facebook and on Instagram. Should their identities be made public? Lisa J. said that she felt conflicted, questioning how much responsibility a 10-year-old should have for their actions. Carol L. agreed, conflicted as well, saying while they were only 10, what they did was beyond sadistic. DDJ said, yes, identify the hell out of them, as did Virginia M. and Rebecca S. But Clara M. said, absolutely not. They were children at the time of the crime, and it would do no one any good whatsoever. Lindy B. said that Robert's family was violent and abusive, but not that of John Venables. She would have expected Robert to be the reoffender, but she was wrong. She really doesn't think that it's fair that so much care is taken to protect the identities of people like these, whereas the victim's families usually fall through the net and they are just expected to carry on. She really doesn't think that these two should constantly receive new changes of identity when their cover is blown. I commented on my own post and said that the government had spent a great deal of money to protect these two and discovered that at least one of them had to be given a new identity because he bragged about being involved in James's murder. And furthermore, I said that Venable seemed like he needed to be kept in some kind of registry. Rebecca Jane said that he is on the sex offender registry, and when he's released, he will be monitored. She pointed out that he was being monitored at the time when he 1st reoffended. So clearly the system isn't working. Christina S said that they reoffended, and yes their identities should be made public. Sunshine K agreed but she would go a step further and say that after the age of 18 they should not get a new identity if they blow the first one that they are given. They are part of the adult world deal with it and stop being a drain on society. L S goes back and forth as to whether or not they should be kept hidden and agreed that once an adult, it is really up to them to stay hidden. If not, good luck, lads. Cat D said as long as they stay out of trouble, then their identities should be protected. But if they reoffend or otherwise demonstrate themselves to be a danger to the community, people should be warned. Cat was swiftly made aware by Lindy B that Venables has been back to jail twice for possession of images of child sex abuse. And so, yeah, agreed that he needs to be named for the protection of the community. Chris T. said that one name change, yes, they were minors at the time of the crime. However, due to the one's continuous criminal activity, meaning venables, and the other one telling everyone what he did because he thought it made him look good, if it were up to her, she would tell them that they're on their own. We tried to keep helping them, but they just don't really want to be helped. And maybe deep down inside. She's the kind of person who thinks that they all deserve the shame and torture that people can bestow upon them for the crime that they committed and the parents whom they devastated. Sunshine Kay shared a bit of a personal experience with something that happened in her family that makes her feel like protecting the families as well as the minors is reasonable when it comes to a hideous crime, but maybe moving far away might be a better solution. Now, dreamers, I had permission to share her story with all of you listening. So I want to thank her for her openness and her honesty. She said that her stepbrother committed a disgusting, hideous thing, not murder, but rape when he was 13 years old. She said it was problematic for the whole family and she didn't even live with them. She wished that she could have moved and changed her name. But now more than 20 years later, She lives in a place where that history isn't part of her story and that her stepbrother grew up to be a father and a business owner with a stable relationship as far as she knows. She pointed out that the crimes of youth trickle down through the community and victimize the family members quite often. Amanda W said, yes, they are sex offenders, at least Venables is, and therefore the public should be made aware of who he is and where he lives. Kathy H. agreed that he should be identified as he lived nearer where she lives and possibly close to Lindy B. as well. Rebecca Jane said that Thompson did his time in the institution and he apparently responded very well to the rehabilitation program. He was given a new identity and since his release has lived a quiet life and has full-time employment. She believes that he should remain anonymous. Venables, however, has now been in prison twice for possessing level four and five images of child sexual abuse. This is the worst type of illegal images. He himself cannot manage to keep his identity secret, resulting in several breaches at the cost of millions of pounds for the British taxpayer. Rebecca believes that he should stay in prison for the rest of his life. He's had his opportunity at rehabilitation and he clearly cannot be helped. Alex Kay agreed with Rebecca's assessment. Venables has lost his right to a new identity, especially now that he's broken that confidentiality himself. He doesn't want to keep quiet, so just give him back his old name. Ella M agreed that they should be made public. They never seemed remorseful, and she sees them both as pure psychopaths who are a real danger to society. Don L says the one who keeps violating his parole and having images of child sexual abuse, meaning Venables, Yes, his identity should be made public. He is clearly a danger. The other, Thompson, from what she understands, has made good on his rehabilitation and is making an honest effort to rejoin society. Lori Marie pointed out that both Thompson and Venables lived in Australia for a period of time after their release, and this is a thing that I did not know about in my research. And the uproar there, which is where she resides, was intense. As a mom, she would have desperately wanted to know the identity of them. However, for their safety, she can see why it was withheld. But she does think it should be information released to the public. Brad D., host of the Mattachine podcast, remains in disbelief as to how anyone could commit such a crime against anyone, let alone a two-year-old. I hear you, Brad. Dave W. feels as though once they became adults, all bets are off. If they want protection, then let them hire protection. If they can't afford that and are concerned, then it's on them to deal with. Move far away, arm themselves, whatever, but they're owed nothing in Dave's opinion. He understands that their adult brains are different from their child brains. So they are not the same people. However, the heinous nature of the crime negates all of that. What they did is unforgivable. Virginia M. and Elizabeth C. agreed with Dave. Liz adding that since Venables has reoffended in various ways multiple times, she doesn't see the need to protect him when he isn't trying to do it for himself. Katie B. agreed, too, that Venables needs to be revealed because he's a pedophile. Monica S. also agrees saying that they've screwed up more than once, at least Venables has, and they obviously aren't appreciative of what England gave them. She even went a little further than most of us, believing that they should have either been executed or given solitary confinement for the rest of their lives 25 years ago. Now that is quite a controversial statement, and I did say in the post for everyone to not argue with anyone else's opinions, and I greatly appreciate that. I do know that Monica S. is not the only person who felt this way about the boys. Rebecca Jane and Caf M. did point out that neither the U.K. or the U.S. will sentence minors to death or to life imprisonment. So, those sentences would not have even been possible. Lisa B. of the Eye for an Eye podcast does agree that both of their identities should have been made public. Senga R., The lovely admin of the Extraordinary Stories podcast, as well as True Crime Island, said that what Venables and Thompson did was abhorrent, but they were children, and they both came from terrible home situations, though I do believe Thompson's was a bit worse than Venables. And, to her knowledge, Thompson is reformed and has not re-offended, so she feels that he should remain anonymous. Venables has been convicted as an adult for crimes involving children, so she feels that by doing this, he should lose the right to his anonymity. Bonnie Lee, my very dear friend and host of the Writing About Crime podcast, feels that it would be too dangerous for both Venables and Thompson if their identities were to be revealed, though Missy D dismisses that concern, believing that they should be publicly named. Vicky G. feels like this is a tough debate, and I agree, it is. They did a horrific thing and removed a life from this world and his family. They worked really hard to do it, too. It wasn't a careless, let's push him and see if he can fly isolated thing. Over and over again, they sought to destroy James. Without intensive therapy, and they did receive it, and rehabilitation, The mere fact that they did this can be a reason to re-offend. But, 10. Vicky is accepting of them getting new identities once, setting them up with a certain amount of support for a bit of time to get life situated with therapeutic support mandated to aid in the transition. But then, after that, after a time limit, it's done. And it's also her understanding that at least one or both of them have had their identities redone because they've outed themselves by bragging or talking about it. So that's on them. They are on their own. But still, Vicky is hung up on the age of 10. She really doesn't feel any answer is good enough. Calf M feels like their identities should be made public but is okay with them being free to live in society, stating that she doesn't agree with keeping the identities of offenders a secret But she does think that crimes committed should be a matter of permanent public record, even if you are a juvenile. But she also thinks that punishment for crimes committed by juveniles is rightfully much less severe, given the fact that the child's brain isn't developed and they may not really understand right from wrong. So she does not think that they should be subjected to further criminal punishment, but doesn't see why they should be afforded the shelter of new identities. To be fair, As Teddy G pointed out, it is unclear if the magnitude of the reoffenses Venables committed is known or being taken into consideration here. And Jen T concurs that Venables's identity should be made public. Teddy G had more to say about this. She said that Venables's new identity was already found out and exposed. He was given a new identity and released at the age of 18. He was imprisoned in February of this year, having been found in possession of thousands of images of child sexual abuse, including rape and torture. And this was his second such offense, the first being in 2010, when he served an additional two years. There was a hearing in December for his bid to have his identity be made public so that if when he is released again, people can protect their children. There are stories of his time in prison, how he showed no remorse, even expressed pride at his crime. Robert Thompson has apparently settled quietly back into a productive life. He is said to be in a long-term stable relationship and has not reoffended since his original release. It's hard to say if releasing their identities would do harm or provide safety for others. Thompson would certainly not do well having his new identity made public and it doesn't seem like that would be a positive step. Venables, on the other hand, has been a problem the entire time he's been out, and Teddy doesn't know if the country would benefit from his identity being released more than by keeping him locked up. Releasing the identities of child criminals is a tricky subject. So over on Instagram, I got some responses to my questions as well, though they have their Instagram names, are not like us on Facebook where we use some semblance of our real names, so... We will be calling these people out by their Instagram handles. Burnt Beard said absolutely. Yes, the public has a right to know the risks they face living in a community with repeat offenders like them enjoying anonymity and protection. I do have to interject here and say that this seems most applicable to John Venables again. And Ms. Mary agreed with that sentiment. Wolfie the wonder dog said definitely yes. They committed a horrific crime, and now the UK public taxes are paying for their anonymity. Swamplet said, since both of them have been in trouble, but I must pause here and correct, it's only been one of them, Venables, for having those images of child sexual abuse, that since being rehabilitated, that alone should null and void the protection. He should be considered a threat, and people should know. Tragic Tracy, who always has really great comments on Instagram for me, said that it depends on what you want from your justice system, rehabilitation or punishment. Should a child who kills be locked away forever or should they be rehabilitated for eventual release back into society? Tracy references Mary Bell, as did many of you, as an example of rehabilitation working the right way that she was a child killer that now lives a quiet life with grandchildren. Should she have been locked up forever for something she did when she had an underdeveloped brain in this day and age with the internet, it's not too hard to find out what these two men look like as adults. So that adds a whole new element to the issue as well. What's the point of spending God knows how much in tax dollars, keeping their identity secret and rehabilitating them only to have them post selfies on Facebook which she believes one of them did. Tracy said that she has thought about this issue before and that the primal part of her says that they should be locked up and throw away the key. Why pour more money into them? They killed a member of society in the most heinous way and now society is expected to finance their recovery? Then the other part of her says that if they're going to be released back into the public, we need to do everything that we can to make sure that they don't do anything like it again. But how is that possible without keeping a very close eye on them? More taxpayer dollars. She guesses that in the end, that it would depend on the individual cases. In this case, Venables was caught with images of child sexual abuse, so he should never be let out of prison. If that is not a red flag, then Tracy doesn't know what is. On the other hand, Thompson is apparently living a quiet life in a relationship and he was the apparent ringleader so you wouldn't have predicted that. She says when the system works, that's great and you get Mary Bell and Robert Thompson but when it doesn't, you get John Venables and his images of child sex abuse. There's no way to predict what you're going to get so we really have to give these kids a chance to rehabilitate. So she says yes Their identities should be a secret as much as she doesn't like it. The host of the Seeing Red podcast answered my question as well. She said, personally, she thinks that it's a public service to know who was around and who would be in danger to her. However, she appreciates that some people would want revenge or to do them harm. But yeah, she thinks that if they were minors, keep them anonymous, and if they grow up, Okay, then that's great. Reoffend as an adult, then you should lose your anonymity. The Jason Osmanson and Mary Bell cases are prime examples that this would work. Fortybeard said yes, he does think that they should be made public, the same as he thinks any pedophile, rapist, killer, or anyone who is a possible danger to his or other people's kids should be made public. Although he does think that some of the offenders mentioned should never be let out. He's heard that one or both have been given different names and at least one is in trouble now for possessing child abuse images. He lives in Britain and is completely baffled by the fact that over there, they no longer have public access to the sex offenders register, which would at least give parents some knowledge of the area they live in and people therein. Surely the main point is to protect the innocent rather than let the guilty out, to possibly harm the innocent. Sure, you could argue that they were kids and that they didn't know what they were doing. But come on. Some of the facts of what was done to Jamie Boulder were so bad that his mother only very recently became aware of them. In his opinion, you can't rehabilitate a sex offender. Momoko 84 said that Venables and Thompson were given new identities and names based on how Mary Bell was treated once she left prison. Living as an adult, Mary Bell, she did not have a chance to start over and prove that she had been rehabilitated. People wanted her blood. She is assuming that no one wanted a repeat for these two people. She doesn't think that anyone thought that Venables would reoffend again, particularly when he was the kid who was crying, emotional, and swore that he didn't sexually assault James. He's now had several changes of identity, so she's thinking that if you screw up as an adult, all bets are off. There would have to be a really good extenuating circumstance for the future identity change in this case. But children from traumatized backgrounds who commit a crime, there needs to be a chance for them. The argument can be made that they stole a life, but if they had been subjected to abuse or neglect themselves, they really haven't lived either. Jay Walden, 52, said she is torn on this as well. She feels strongly about rehabilitating child criminals. However, considering that they do not have good track records, meaning Venables as far as we are aware, she feels like there is a potential threat to the public, and this makes her lean towards revealing the identity. If they are just living a good, quiet life, then that would be different. She would want to give them a chance to have a life. This is such an ethical dilemma. And finally, the host of Just Killin' Time Box Podcast said given the fact that Venables is a repeat offender, concealing his identity at the public's cost is outrageous. He has had his chance. Life imprisonment is the way forward for that low life. I want to thank everyone, all the commenters, for contributing your opinions and keeping it nice and not debating over it. This is certainly a subject that not everyone is going to agree on, But for the most part, it does feel like we are in agreement that John Venables needs a bit more help. Whether it's longer incarceration or better supervision. And unfortunately, it seems like if he's going to be on the sex offender registry, then it needs to be known who he is. Because honestly, does the community really want to wait and see if he's going to eventually act out on his impulses again? I know that he was a child when he killed James Bolger, but he's an adult now, and that fact, jamess murder, is still a part of who he is as a person. If there was anyone who should be doing everything that he can to live his best life, given he's had this second chance at a completely clean slate handed over to him, it's him, and clearly he is not. I want to go back and take a bit of a closer look at the boys and where they came from. We kind of touched on it a little bit, but I dug around a little bit more and I wanted to share some things that I found. Because no matter what we think of either one of them, then or now, they were still very young children when they murdered James. And that just can't be ignored. Robert Thompson was considered to be the tougher one of the two. And that's because everyone assumed that he was the mastermind of the torture and murder plot. But it is believed that his personality trait, that this personality trait in him, was something that was developed, not as a result of him being violent or aggressive, but because he needed to be this way in order to protect himself. He was raised in what's been described as a very rough, often brutal home environment, he was constantly the target of emotional and physical abuse from not only his mother, who was known to be an alcoholic, but also his older siblings. And to whatever extent he was exposed to his father, who was reportedly mostly absent from their lives, but prior to leaving them for good, had beaten Thompson's mother without mercy. As a result of this, Thompson developed this stone-cold, emotionless way about him. Is it possible that Thompson would be more the type to try to avoid trouble as opposed to look for it? If he wanted trouble, he could have just stayed home. He was constantly surrounded by troubles there. Wandering the streets, ditching school, shoplifting. Were those his escapes from a difficult home life? He learned early on that when he was forced into a corner, he became cagey. He would spin lies if he could. And then he would just have to take the punishment dealt to him. The cycle of abuse began with Thompson's parents own upbringing. His mother Anne's family was terribly abusive. So in an attempt to escape the abuse, mainly from her father, She met and married Robert Thompson, Sr., both of whom were only 18 years old at the time that they got married. But Anne, it seemed, had gone from one abusive situation to another. Not only was Anne's new husband an alcoholic, just like her father, he too was physically abusive towards her. The couple having children didn't make things any better. If anything, they became worse the elder Thompson was continuing to beat his wife, now in front of an audience comprised of his own children. And out of fear and utter frustration, Anne would go and do the same to her children, beating them with anything that she could find at the ready. Sticks, belts, whatever. On a number of occasions, Anne simply could not deal with life anymore, and attempted at least a couple of suicide attempts by trying to overdose on medications. But eventually, she just became dependent upon alcohol as a way of numbing her reality. The younger Robert Thompson and his five brothers were pretty much left to fend for themselves, but they also were left to care for each other as well. What ended up happening is the older brothers ended up physically abusive to the younger ones each one more vulnerable than the other as you went down the line of brothers eldest to youngest when the oldest thompson child was four years old he was removed from the home by child protective services and placed in an alternative living situation after it had been reported that he was a victim of physical abuse once that happened it was like the first domino to fall following that Another of the Thompson boys began thieving and shoplifting and whom did he bring along with him? Younger brother, Robert Thompson, to be his partner. Another brother developed a fascination with fire and is reported to have committed a number of acts of arson. The same brother has also been suspected of possibly sexually abusing children. And what's more, it's been speculated that Robert Thompson himself May have been sexually abused by the same arsonist brother as well. One of the Thompson children had gotten into serious trouble at school for threatening violence against one of his teachers. Whenever one of the older siblings was left in charge to care for the younger ones, so mom could go do whatever mom needed to do. The little ones would be locked in a pigeon shed they had in the yard. So fed up with the dire situation at home. One of the siblings eventually left voluntarily to stay in a care center. On some occasion, at least two, possibly more of the brothers had made attempts at suicide themselves. So due to all of this chaos in the Thompson home, the brothers were fairly well known to local police and social workers within the child protective services system. When something untoward went down, it was check with the Thompson's first. When there was a crime, check with the Thompsons when there was anything suspicious check with the Thompsons every single Thompson boy that was old enough to be in school was constantly truant and none of them had any respect for authority I do believe this was quite apparent in part two when I described Thompson's interactions with investigators when he was being questioned about his role in James's murder he basically behaved like a little brat Thompson was the second-to-youngest of the six brothers, so based on what I've just described, he likely took a great deal of abuse and bullying within his own family based on his birth order. It is believed that he did try to please his mother, always being the first one to want to help her around the house, to help with the chores, as he recognized early on that she struggled. Mom would go on to have a seventh child with a different father, Ben the one he talked about with investigators, the one that he said that if he wanted to kill a baby, he had a convenient baby at home to kill. Why would he go out and kill James? Thompson would help his mom care for his new little baby brother, often babysitting him when his mom, again, was off doing whatever she was doing. Thompson didn't really display violent or aggressive tendencies. It wasn't in his nature but he was described as cunning and underhanded. His teachers would describe him as typically shy and quiet, and they did recognize a manipulative side of him when it came to other students. Going along, his brothers passed through school, following in the footsteps of the older Thompsons before him. His family name and their reputation preceded him. It seemed to cause him issues in school, just being known as yet another Thompson boy. But he also used the reputation to hide and protect himself. Teachers already knew, so the bar was set quite low for him when it came to expectations from him in class, and the other students basically steered clear of him. John Venables, when he was transferred to Thompson's school, would go on to become one of the very few kids that would hang out with him. Anne Thompson would have always defended her boy as the good one out of all the boys that she had he was the good one he was mostly all bark and no bite and like I said hiding behind that reputation trying to ride that wave instead of really making any of his own nobody would have thought him to be capable of the kinds of violence that he would ultimately engage in on that February day in 1993 he was truant a lot He'd often be on the streets, wandering around late at night in the wee hours of the morning. His mom would sometimes attempt to hide his shoes in order to prevent him from leaving the house at these crazy late hours. And ironically, it would be those very shoes that she tried to hide in order to keep him home that would ultimately be the link to the crimes committed against James Bulger, taking him away from home for a very long time. That blood That shoe print on James's face. Mom couldn't possibly hide all that. The cycle of abuse was continuing through Thompson. However, he had suffered at the hands of his older brothers and that pattern was beginning to repeat from him onto his younger brother Ryan. Despite his abusive treatment of his little brother. They did reportedly have quite an odd relationship. They would typically sleep in the same bed. And they were both thumb suckers and they tended to suck on each other's thumbs, which I don't think is something I've ever really heard of before at their ages. Anyway, I did again, ask Kate from the ignorance was bliss podcast about this thumb sucking activity as they did get a little older into childhood into second, third, fourth, fifth grade or so. And she said, it's a thing that would happen mostly with twins or siblings that are very close in age that they tend to be more prone to emotional neglect than other kids. So they entertain and soothe each other so well that parents feel like they can step back. And this leads to the kids doing more and more of this and the parents stepping back more and more. And in extreme cases where there is real parental neglect, like we've seen within the Thompson family, the kids can get fully wrapped up into each other to the point where it appears strange to the outside world. So back to Thompson, it was noted that when he was on trial for James's murder, his younger brother Ryan had demonstrated some increasingly troubling behaviors. He began wetting the bed frequently. He was lighting fires in his bedroom and he put on some weight. What it seemed was happening was the attention that Robert Thompson was getting from the media and the trial for James's murder was making Ryan jealous. And we've heard this before recently. Remember Stephen and Carrie Stainer back in episode 58? When Stephen was kidnapped for seven years or so and came back, his older brother Carrie was jealous and ultimately became a serial killer. That's kind of extreme, but it was associated with jealousy on a basic level. I'm certain there are many more complicated underlying issues there. But anyway... It became a very real fear for Anne that her son Ryan would possibly attempt to do something to match the crime of his brother in order to garner the same attention. And besides, the home life was so horrible, it seemed like a surefire way to get out of there, to find a better life, commit a murder, be on TV, get into the newspapers, live in a new home, and basically be well taken care of until the age of 18. It probably sounded really good to several, if not all of the Thompson boys. The idea has been floated that the way Thompson felt about his brother Ryan, some of the feelings that he may have felt towards him could have manifested themselves during the crime against James. All of the things that were done to James may have been some things Thompson possibly thought or fantasized about doing to Ryan, as it is known the Thompson brothers bullied each other. Thompson was known to make Ryan skip school with him and wander the streets and shoplift with him. He once even pranked Ryan by ditching him at the canal, which caused Ryan to become very upset. And this was the exact place where they had left James crying after Thompson dropped him on his head, then ran away from him. But they eventually came back to collect him and keep on going. Even when he told investigators that if he wanted to kill a baby, he'd kill his own as if that was something that had crossed his mind. And because of all of these factors, it is widely believed that the plan to abduct a child began with Thompson. Even skipping over Ryan, he had his 18-month-old baby brother Ben at home. Was he having feelings of wanting to bully and abuse his baby brother, but either couldn't or wouldn't act on those feelings, so he decided to find a baby to lash out at? It is believed that some of the things that he did to James, if not all of them, were things that were done to him by his older brothers, and this was his way of getting some sort of revenge or vengeance, and he just happened to pick James. Could he have been jealous of his two younger brothers, Ryan and Ben? And because he himself was only 10 years old, he was only capable of picking on kids younger than him, like a toddler, like James. It is still unclear who initiated the attack on James. However, Venables, after all, was the one holding James's hand in that surveillance footage. Venables had been the one calling out to children to lure them away from their parents. Once they had James, it seemed like Venables was the one who was interested in hanging on to James, like the control had shifted from Thompson to Venables. One witness who had confronted the three children along their walk reported that Thompson was the one holding James's hand at the time, but let go of him once he saw the adult noticing them. He let go of James's hand and pretended to divert his attention elsewhere. But it was Venables who demanded that Thompson hang on to James. And he listened. And the media came down hardest on Thompson during the course of their trial. He was described by one reporter as a mini Charles Manson by the way he coldly stared. But some believe that this was Thompson's way of self-preservation. He behaved this way to protect himself. And knowing what we know about his upbringing, this makes a bit of sense. But it backfired on him. And it was used against him to paint him as this cold, heartless, remorseless killer. And it is because of this that some believe that it is likely he was not necessarily the ringleader, which has been the running theme ever since all of this happened. As a matter of fact, some examining this case believe it was Venables who displayed the stronger predisposition for the kinds of violence seen inflicted upon James. Though Thompson was by no means an innocent onlooker to the torture and the beating, the idea has been put forward that John Venables was the one responsible for the worst of the worst that was done to James. But they kind of fed off each other. They were running the gamut of emotions. This was really getting their adrenaline going, but they were nervous at the same time. A part of them thought that this was funny, but they were also scared and afraid at the same time. But they both in their own ways were filled with anger and violence and viciousness that once they started, they could not stop. And the moment just fueled the both of them. And they wrote this out to the end. It's never been able to be confirmed, but it has been speculated that it may have been Thompson that could have committed the alleged sexual assault during the course of the crime, especially if he was indeed sexually abused himself by one of his older brothers. He may have had a similar urge to do so to one of his younger brothers, but acted this out on James instead. Thompson only became flustered during the interviews when the possibility of sexual abuse against James was mentioned. He turned red. He worried about what Venables was going to say about it, that he would accuse him of playing with James's privates. He cried over the idea that people would think he's a pervert, but yet he never did admit to anything of the sort ever. So what does this all possibly mean? As tough as Thompson had come across throughout the entire crime and trial, despite the way the media portrayed him at the time, he still behaved extremely childish and immature, and he was teased incessantly over many of these things, playing with dolls, sucking his thumb, preferring to play with girls, for being kind of feminine himself. Venables even said these things about Thompson during his interrogation, using these things as a put-down against him. Thompson's home life had hardened him, and he was forced to suppress all of these aspects of himself and who he really was, all of this by the age of 10. And maybe, just maybe, that is where the genesis of what ended up happening to James lies within those repressed feelings, frustrations, anger. All of it needed an outlet. And maybe the way to find that release was to unleash it all onto James. The very symbol of what Thompson was never allowed to be himself. A child. The day before James Bolger was abducted on the 11th of February it seems that John Venables was not having a good day. There was something unusual about him something off. He appeared to be agitated for some reason. He was anxious. Restless even Some would even go so far to say that he was out of control. Teachers began noticing some troubling behaviors from him as far back as two years prior to the abduction. It's thought that Venables was looking for attention, as he was often quite disruptive in class. He behaved oddly. He would rock back and forth while seated at his desk. He would grab hold of his desk and just rock. A moaning sound would emanate from him, along with a bevy of strange sounds. His teacher once tried moving Venables to the front of the class, next to her desk, just so she could keep a closer eye on him. To quietly correct him if he became troublesome to minimize the disruption of the rest of the class but what he ended up doing was messing with the things on the teachers desk touching things knocking things over just unable or unwilling to keep his hands to himself Venables propensity for violence at first was inflicted upon himself in the beginning he was known to become so frustrated or angry That he would bang his head on pieces of furniture, desk, tables, as well as against walls and doors. In the throes of what could only be described as a huge tantrum, he would throw himself down on the ground, writhe around and cry. He would use scissors to cut himself. He would even tear apart his clothing that he'd be wearing. Every once in a while, these acts of self-destruction would turn elsewhere, away from himself. He had been observed wandering around his classroom, going around destroying displays, ripping apart the artwork and projects of his classmates. He had been known to stand atop his desk and lob items at other students seated at theirs. All of these behaviors and more were all documented by each of Venables teachers and each of them noted that it was unlike anything they'd ever seen before. And as time went on, Venables' behavior became more and more concerning, more than just disruptiveness in the classroom. Things were turning violent. According to one report on his records, he had snuck up behind a classmate and with a wooden ruler began choking the boy. It was so frenzied and so violent that it required two adult members of the staff to wrestle Venables away from the boy that he was choking. Not long after that incident, Venables was transferred to a new school, but his hyperactivity and distractibility were continuing to be a problem. He was constantly behind on completing his assignments and homework. But his teachers continued to think that he was just looking for any kind of attention, negative or otherwise, it didn't really seem to matter to him. And that Venables was simply a lazy student who was disinterested in keeping up with his studies. For the most part, his teachers did not consider him to be a terribly bad child. They kind of felt more sorry for him than anything else. Despite some of his acting out, he was otherwise a sweet boy. And these actions on his part were sort of a cry for help, they assumed. But I'm wondering, a cry for help from what? Because Thompson's family life was known to be quite troubled. Is it possible that something in Venables' home was being overlooked? What was life like in the Venables' home? You see, early on, I was under the impression, based on the mainstream media, that Thompson had the troubled childhood. He seemed to be the focus of the story, mainly because of his cold demeanor. But as it turns out, as I delve deeper into this story, I came to realize that Venables' upbringing was no walk in the park either. John Venables was born on the 13th of August, 1982, to Mother Susan and Father Neil. His dad was a forklift operator, but had difficulty keeping steady work. I mentioned before that Venables was the middle child, and his siblings both did have learning disabilities and developmental issues which required special education accommodations to be made for them. Venables's older brother struggled with speech and communication issues resulting from having been born with a cleft palate. This caused a great deal of frustration for him growing up and he was prone to angry outbursts and temper tantrums as a result. He was enrolled in a specialized school designed for his needs and their parents ended up having to focus much of their attention on him working on his behavior dealing with these emotional issues. Things would sometimes become so unmanageable for the Venables, they would end up sending him to foster care. Venables had a younger sister who also struggled with her own set of developmental matters and was required to attend a special needs school designed for her specific issues as well. She too demanded a great deal of her parents' attention. And then there was John Venables in the middle and apparently developing relatively normally. This could very well be a prime example of the middle child syndrome falling into this void, feeling ignored while the older and younger demand all the attention. Once in a while Venables in order to get some of the focus onto himself, would throw tantrums of his own mimicking his older brother. And that really doesn't sound as though any of it would be helpful to what Venables really needed from his family. Venables's parents had an extremely tumultuous marriage consisting of a seemingly endless cycle of breaking up and getting back together only to break up again. The home was in a perpetual state of chaos. His father would move out for good. So his mother was forced to move in with her mother only to find herself living with his father once again, and then realizing that doing the same thing over and over again is just insanity. So, she would move out yet again, becoming dependent upon the public housing system in Liverpool. Of course, Dad would sometimes come around too, looking to want to fix things again, but it never really lasted for any significant amount of time. All three children would be deeply impacted by this constant instability and volatile environment that they were made to exist in. Both mom and dad had documented histories of being diagnosed as clinically depressed and it is noted that mom was susceptible to hysterics. She was raised in what's been described as a strict and very disciplined family herself, which leads me to believe that there may very well have been physical and corporal punishment used in her upbringing. She had been known to be physically and verbally abusive to Venables, but I don't see it anywhere noted that she treated her other two children in this manner. When she would simply just lose her patience and couldn't deal with him anymore, she would ship him off to his dad's. She just couldn't do it. By the time he was seven, it's been stated that Venables began displaying indications of antisocial behavior. He seemed to become overtly hostile and aggressive towards others He scoffed at following normal social rules. He was defiant towards those in authority and had just a general disregard for others. He developed an intense hatred for other children who lived in his neighborhood because he and his siblings were constant targets for bullies. John had a minor issue with his eye where one of them would appear to be squinting all the time and he was teased for this regularly. And remember how emotional Venables had become following his arrest, interrogation, and subsequent trial? He was quite hysterical, if you recall. Well, this is the kind of reaction the neighborhood kids would elicit from him whenever they teased him, which fueled their merciless torment. Because of his behavior, it was becoming increasingly challenging to deal with him. He was transferred to a different school, but was dropped back one grade level. And this is where fate kicked in and he would cross paths with Robert Thompson. Another troubled boy also held back one grade level and only 10 days apart in age. Kindred spirits in a way. And once they hooked up, they both went from being bullied to becoming the bullies. They would hone in on weaker children. Smaller, those they considered to be easy targets, and constantly picked on them. Venables wasn't a tough kid, but becoming friends with Thompson, it bolstered his perceived toughness, at least in his own mind. They began ditching school pretty frequently, and for this, I'm going to have to look to the parents for not keeping better tabs on their children. Now, granted, all four of their parents struggled with some very serious issues. And I don't want to diminish that or take that away from them. We've all had our days where we just can't get out of bed and get our kids off to school, right? All of us, myself included. But we just do it because we have to. We have to do our best to make sure our problems don't become our kids' problems. And for me, there's just no real good excuse, no matter how down in the dumps we all feel. All we have to do is get up, make some breakfast, get our kids washed up, dressed and out the door. And some schools even have breakfast available. Just get them over there. Then you can come home and crawl back into bed for the next six hours. That's your time to be a mess while you have free and public education and supervision for your kids. This aspect of the story frustrates me beyond belief. Because if not for this. If not for the truancy. If not for the lack of parental supervision. How would this story have been different for the Boulder family. The school staff began to notice that Thompson and Venables as a duo were bad news, and they tried to separate the friends, but it didn't really matter seeing as they skipped school pretty regularly. As troublesome as they were, with Venables being disruptive in class, unwilling to complete any schoolwork or participate in any meaningful way, and Thompson, the more subdued, quiet one, but cunning, untrustworthy, a liar, and quite a manipulative individual. Nobody would have taken either one of them to be particularly violent or prone to violence. Thompson was noticeably more mature than Venables, much more mature. And Venables' parents did not approve of their son's friendship with Thompson. They noticed his behavior had changed even more so for the worse, and believed it was directly related to his new friendship and they knew of the Thompson boys' reputation as well. At this time, Venables was living with his dad, so if Thompson ever showed up or was around their home, he'd shoo him away, refusing to let the boy in or around his house. It has been noted that Venables, similarly to Thompson, had a great deal of emotions that he repressed, specifically a great deal of anger and frustration and hostility. For whatever reason though, he would insist his home life was perfectly fine. There were no problems, but he was definitely acting out in school and it was believed the issues were beginning at home. He was very defensive of his family and would say it was a very loving and supportive home. And this is where perhaps the misconceptions about his upbringing lie from his own telling of it. When he was being interviewed by police about James's murder he became openly hostile towards his father, especially when the subject of any possible sexual assault on James was mentioned. When he was questioned about this, he approached his dad, who was seated in the room and began punching him, yelling, quote, me dad thinks I know, but I don't. That outburst raised some eyebrows. As Neil Venables was never known to have been abusive towards the children. Mom, however, was a different story. She seemed to strike the fear of God in Venables heart. She had an ironclad hold on the boy. Controlled him completely. And he lived in utter fear of her ever disapproving of him. When it came to the day that Venables and Thompson were at the new strand looking for a child to abduct. It was Venables who took charge of the attempts to coax children towards them. To hold their hand. If the boy saw a child in a shop. It was Venables who would tap on the storefront window to get the child's attention. Remember, it was Venables who walked out of the New Strand holding James by the hand. And the most damning evidence of this fact, that Venables was the one in the lead, his own confession when he stated, quote, I did kill him. I made mention of this previously. He didn't say we, he didn't say Robert. He said, "I." But also in his confession, he would admit to playing a minor role in the attack. He would say he tried to miss while pummeling James with stones and bricks, or he only threw light things at him. But of the two of them, it seems as though Venables is indeed the one with the smoldering temper that exploded that day. And perhaps it wasn't so much Thompson that was the one who had lost it. It's been the common perception for those who have been familiar with this case that it was Robert Thompson who was the mastermind of this whole thing from start to finish. Most people believe it was Thompson's idea to abduct James and to bring him to the canal that all of this started with him. Even so, do we know who instigated the violence? We know Venables instigated the abduction. But who lashed out violently at James first? Thompson, whose background in childhood was riddled with violence and abuse. Would it have been simple for him to have picked up James and dropped him on the ground headfirst? Was he that numb and desensitized to violence to be able to commit such an act? To be the first one to attack James? Or could it have been Venables, emboldened by his friendship with this tough hardened friend wanting to be the one to show off to act out now that he had James at his disposal. Would he be the one to begin the callous attack on him? I don't know if the answer could ever be known. But I've now come to believe that it could have been either one of them equally for different reasons. But they both had been known to previously been kind and protective of younger children. They were both older brothers. They both had displayed compassion towards young children in the past. And from my experience with kids, it seems instinctual for children to be drawn to interested, protective, and excited to take on that role as the older one for a change. When they ran away from James after they dropped him on his head, they could have left him. But something compelled them to come back. He was crying and hurt. Was there a part of them that did not want to leave him lying on the ground in that condition? Perhaps. But then what they would follow up with didn't really make all that much sense if they empathized with his pain and his tears. At some point, The compulsions took over. Whatever forces were pulling them towards violence overpowered any innate, instinctual feelings of compassion or concern. And they continued to meander around town with James, uninhibited, unfazed by anything or anyone that they would encounter. And one of the things throughout this whole story that disturbs me the most is the doll theme That continues to infuse so many aspects of this story. James Bolger was an adorable baby. There are very few pictures of him when you do an internet search. I can only hope that his mother and father have just decided to save their private collection for their eyes only, giving only a few select photos out for the world to see. He was simply a beautiful baby, just like a little doll, I'm certain. Even in death, the driver of the train assumed he saw a doll on the tracks as he approached James. Apparently it was a thing for kids to lay dolls out on the tracks as some kind of grotesque joke. So that's where his mind went when he saw the little bundle. Two days later, when the boys playing near the tracks discovered James's broken little body, they too thought it was a doll they even said so much to a reporter stating quote then you see the doll's legs and we all ran and said no 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 it's not there was a theory floated early on about venables's dad having rented the movie child's play 3 on the 18th of january 1993 starring the chucky doll who's carrying the soul of the serial killer that this had some influence on the violence that was carried out against james I don't really like to bring this up because I don't find that there is much correlation between movies and real-life crime. I don't like to blame or point fingers at movies or video games or any kind of pop culture phenomenon as being the cause or reason for violence because ultimately there is only the perpetrator or perpetrators to blame. But apparently in Child's Play 3, which I haven't seen any of the series of movies, this doll, about the size of a toddler goes around killing people. And in the end, he is cornered in some sort of amusement park on some roller coaster tracks. And there is a fight on these tracks and the doll is dismembered. And during this scene, the Chucky doll has some blue paint on his face from being thrown in a previous scene in the movie. The evil Chucky doll is killed by some of the heroes of the story And the idea is that Venables perhaps saw this theme in the movie and wanted to live this out in his own personal hero fantasy, James being his nemesis. All of this sounds ridiculous to me and there is no confirmation that Venables ever saw the movie, but I wouldn't put it past dad to allow his boy to watch questionable films like this, especially if he felt like mom wouldn't approve and they didn't get along. When my daughter was seven, her friend wanted her to have a sleepover while she was at her dad's house for the weekend. I didn't think much of it because she had gone to their home several times before, and it was before her friend's parents split up. Well, he rented stepbrothers. I wish I were joking. And to this day, I have not been able to watch that movie to see what this dad allowed our kids to watch. It's funny now, right? I bet you're all listening to this laughing. But ever since, I've never put anything past newly single dads out there. Sorry if I'm being judgy. I'm sure there are moms out there that make equally tasteless choices. And there are dads out there who are perfectly capable of making age-appropriate choices as well. But this is just my own personal experience. Anyway... Back to the dolls. Thompson was teased for enjoying playing with dolls. The day they abducted James, he shoplifted a troll doll. Then when being questioned, dolls were used to elicit answers from Thompson as to what happened. He denied taking part in James's killing, yet he used the dolls to reenact the whole thing. Dolls are like a paradox to us. Kind of a contradiction. Dolls can be both adorable but also kind of freakishly scary. They can be used during imaginative play, pretending to parent the doll, dressing it up, feeding it, changing its clothes. But some children are quite destructive with dolls. They chop off their hair, they rip off their heads, they vandalize their faces and bodies with markers, How many times have we seen dolls at second-hand stores or garage sales and they just look like a mess? Thompson collected troll dolls. He wanted to steal one from the new strand. And he did. But he ended up taking part in stealing James as well. With Venables and his possible interest in the Chucky doll, Thompson and his fondness of troll dolls It got me thinking about dolls that actually had batteries. That made them move or talk or do something automated, operated by batteries. Why in the world would Venables and Thompson insert batteries into James? During the course of his interview, Thompson did allude to the idea that they made an attempt to get James alive again. Those were his words. Did their 10-year-old brains actually think it was possible once James was dead? Did they, for some reason, only the 10-year-old mind could come up with, think that putting batteries into him would help? I read that in an article, and my first instinct is to brush it off as nonsense. But I have no idea what is going on in the mind of a 10-year-old especially one in the midst of beating a toddler to death. Because of the way they battered James to death, it's been speculated that perhaps Venables and Thompson in their own minds saw James as less than human. Like he was a doll. Thompson showed nearly zero emotion when talking about James. But when he took to the dolls, the emotions came pouring out of him. As if he suddenly felt and saw the truth in what they had done through his demonstration with the dolls. Those seemed to mean more to him than James did in human form. We've heard that of killers, adult killers specifically, who see their victims as less than human so that they would be less inhibited in committing murder. I'm not sure if the kids really had this ability to dehumanize but I wonder if they just didn't view him as a sentient being who was truly suffering because of their attack. James wasn't even able to tell the boys his name, according to their interviews. He only cried for his mother. And maybe in some twisted way, Venables and Thompson saw a lot of themselves in James. Helpless and abused, longing for their own mom's. We will never understand. I don't even know if we're truly meant to understand and act like this. I don't know if John Venables or Robert Thompson ever will either. So does knowing all of this now about Venables and Thompson give us any insight as to why things have turned out the way they have today? One of the common points commenters made in our discussion group is how surprising it was that Venables turned out to be the one who would go on to have the troubled adult life and not Thompson. It was generally believed that Thompson was the so-called ringleader, but as it turns out, that may not have actually been the case. They both had a tough go at life in the beginning, but it seems as though as Thompson grew up in his abusive situation, he learned to protect himself and his feelings. He was guarded, he had a tough exterior, and he didn't let the pressures get to him. It made him tough and he was able to hold it together emotionally. But Venables, he had absolutely no coping skills whatsoever. He crumbled under the pressure. If he acted or behaved like a little tough guy, it was because he was emboldened by Thompson. None of it was on his own. He was the weak one, emotionally. But once he gained control over little James, with Thompson as his backup, he suddenly felt like a tough guy. Whereas Thompson didn't need James to feel tough. He already was. His family conditioned him to be that way. So when they engaged in this violent act together, yeah, I believe they certainly egged each other on. But when they were cornered, Thompson was ready for it. Venables was not. And as all of this played out, Venables continued to be damaged by the entire ordeal, from arrest to release. I don't think he ever got better in rehabilitation. He simply wasn't able to cope with any of it. And when he got out, he couldn't cope with that either. So he was free, but he was an emotionally crippled adult now. Thompson, however, none of this fazed him. He wasn't going to be damaged by his arrest and subsequent incarceration. He went in damaged. The only way to go for him was to heal. To get better. And I think he did. After killing James, he went to a new home. He successfully completed his education. He was able to do things as a part of his rehabilitation that he would have never been able to do if he had remained with his family. He saw a world that he was never able to see before. And he embraced it. For all intents and purposes, the rehabilitation of Robert Thompson worked. Before I finally end this, I want to quickly mention Terrence and James Riley. Terrence was 13 and his brother James was 14 when they were playing near a Merseyside railway embankment on Valentine's day of 1993 and saw what they first believed to be the remnants of a doll. And it turned out to be the broken body of little James Bulger. Both of these boys would grow up to lead lives of crime themselves. Terence having found himself involved in drug dealing and trafficking and was sentenced to 12 years in 2009 for his involvement in a four million pound drug conspiracy. And that's pounds and money not weight. And Brother James, in the years following their discovery of Little James's remains, he would rack up nearly 50 convictions for a laundry list of crimes. Crimes as petty as stealing a bottle of brandy, which was in 2010. After being released from that 2009 drug conviction, Terrence found himself back in Liverpool Crown Court for leading police on a high-speed chase across Merseyside. Terrence was speeding down a road in Litherland on the 9th of April, 2017, a little after noon, when he was spotted by an unmarked police car. They activated their sirens, but Terrence failed to stop. He sped up, passing vehicles recklessly, speeding dangerously through residential neighborhoods. The chase ended in a loss of control of the vehicle and him crashing head-on into another vehicle, occupied by Darren Evans, Tina Barnes, and their 11-year-old son, injuring all three of them. With cuts, bruises, they were shaken up, but otherwise they were okay. Terrence emerged from the car with a lump on his head. He attempted to flee, but was apprehended, and when he was, he informed the officers that he was high. A swab test taken indicated traces of cocaine, but he would later refuse a blood test. He did admit to driving dangerously, driving with a suspended license, driving without insurance, all that stuff. He did call himself a scumbag for injuring those people in the car he hit, especially the child. He had also recently become a father himself and... He just found himself that day filled with anxiety and ran. The judge this time acknowledged that he suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder because of having been one of the ones to find James Bolger's remains. But still, she was forced to sentence him to 12 more months in jail for the chase. When James Riley was facing the charges for stealing that brandy in 2010, his attorney stated, quote, The horror of what he found on that occasion with his brother is something that he's lived with ever since. Rather than taking advantage of the counseling and the like, he turned to alcohol and drugs. Terrence and James Riley's grandmother opened up about her grandchildren's trauma in 2003, that the ordeal of finding James destroyed the boys and they never really spoke about it. They kept it all bottled up to themselves. Grandma explained, quote, We tried to get the boys to talk about it, but they had become so hysterical, screaming that they didn't want to think about it. After that day, James went off the rails and Terrence's personality totally changed. We'd hardly see them those days, but we knew it was finding James's body that changed them. Every night I pray for little James, but I also pray for my grandson's. And this is yet another example of those ripple effects. Again, the actions of one or two, as it were spilling over into lives, affecting people for years and years to come. It's utterly heartbreaking. The 25th anniversary of James's death passed this last February. He would have been 28 years old today. He could have been a dad by now, an uncle. Who knows what he would have made of his life. His mom, Denise, is still out there advocating for her son. She's written a book entitled I Let Him Go. And part of the proceeds go to the memorial trust in James's memory. Both his mother and father continue to fight for justice for their son every time a court hearing for Venables comes up. And they will be there the next time he comes up for parole in his most recent violation. Our hearts go out to Denise Fergus and Ralph Boulder, for the senseless loss of their child. Little Jamie Boulder. And that brings this three part series of the tale of James Boulder to a close. Thank you so much for listening. This case is one that likely deserves a podcast of its own and I'm especially grateful for all of those who live in England who reached out to me to say that this was a story well told. That really means a lot to me because it felt like taking a big chance on tackling a big story in a foreign country. But I got so much out of it and I learned a great deal about your country and the way the system works. And I'm very pleased to have been able to tell the story that has resonated with all of you not just in England but around the world who know James Boulder and his tragically short life. Please join us on the Facebook discussion page where we discuss this case and all the other ones we cover on our show. If you already aren't a member of the page, please search the California Dreaming official discussion page to request to join. We are 1000 strong and growing, and we would love to see all of you there. We talk about crime, pets, other podcasts, anything that you like, just no politics and no religion. Otherwise, we're pretty flexible. You can also follow us on Twitter at California Pod and on Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with the mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I am very proud to be a part of this amazing group of shows and hosts. You can visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You can find links to all of our shows, our merchandise store, our blog. And if you just want to email us to let us know what you think with any comments or questions, you can do that there as well. That's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again for joining me for the 68th episode of California Dreaming. I hope you have enjoyed this vacation series as much as I did. Hopefully I can get my stuff together in time to get the Halloween episodes I want to do for you out there as well and a new Patreon bonus, which I'm working on. This James Boulder story has just dominated so much of my time the last couple of weeks, but he definitely deserved it. Until next time, Sweet dreams